Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 157 of my sexy music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'd to welcome all you to part two of episode number 157 of my 60 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or on iHeartRadio on Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I am a 26-year-old songwriter slash producer but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slasher. And each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and put the show in two, two parts. First part of the show, talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks. Then do my own personal analysis and arrange the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song is a core of that, whether and talk about the studio musicians that played on the song, or talk about the band members that played on the song, talk about the song the history about the songwriter wrote the song, and the producer that produced it, and the studio the song was recorded at, and the label the song was released on, the history behind that, and also talk about the history behind the artist that recorded the song, and the peak position the song made up originally built with a hot one hundred charts before first came out, and the year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we on this week's episode of the podcast, I actually want to inform you guys of something really, really cool that's coming up next week for my podcast. Because normally, you know, on Thanksgiving, I just take take that week off because uh, I just assume that not a lot of people are going to be listening to podcasts that, that week. Because especially, you know, right now in 2021, with the pandemic being so much better than we were once before, specifically in in, uh, in the U.S., I'm sure a lot of you guys are going to be getting together with your families and just like really not listening to a podcast that week. But it just so happens that I actually have an interview episode that in the can already that I recorded already that is going to be my first interview episode since February, since since the one I did with Steve Boone. So that's going to be really cool because I know it's been a long time since I've done a podcast interview. So I'm really excited to uh, have this next guest on because it's going to be really interesting. Okay, Um, you know, because here's the thing. So I've never had a studio musician on my on my podcast before, and I've also never had a female guest. All of my guests have been male, so I've done, but I've had everyone on from songwriters to producers to members of groups, whether it be a lead singer or a solo artist or a bass player or, you know, uh, you know, I just, I've had so many different kind of people on my podcast before, but I've never had a studio musician, a person that played on multiple hits by multiple different artists, and I've never had a female guest. So that's going to be really, really cool for me to talk to someone who is a woman at that time. Um, because, you know, it's, it's not going to, you know, it's, that's going to be a really interesting episode. I think you guys are going to like this one a lot. So on Thanksgiving weekend, I'm going to basically put out my first interview episode since February of 2021. 
So it's been a hell of a long time since I've done an interview episode. So you guys are in for a real treat. And it just so happens that I have four other people that want to do a podcast interview. So I'm going to do one early January and hopefully do one more before the year is over. I think I'm going to do at least one more uh, in December of next month. So 2021, we'll have one more interview episode before the next one in 2022. So and that one's going to be with Brooks Arthur. I'm very, very excited to talk to him. I've been dying to get him on my show for a long time, but it didn't work out once before. But now he's in a better position to do it. So I'm really, really excited to talk to him, uh, you know, because I've been trying to get him on for so long. And it's going to be really, really great to have him on my podcast. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, I'm going to I'm going to have one more. You know, I'm going to have another interview episode out Thanksgiving weekend. And you guys can listen to that. Um, you know, during specifically on Thanksgiving weekend, you know, if you guys aren't too busy spending time with your family and you just want you just want to consume some really good podcast content. Um, it's not that long. It's only about it's only going to be like an hour. So it's not going to be it's, you know, because sometimes these interview episodes can be super long, like two hours. And those are great. In my opinion, I love it when they're two hours, but sometimes they're kind of short. So. Um, but this one's not going to be that long, so it won't take up too much of your time. But I, I guarantee, I can guarantee you this: it's very, very interesting. There's some really, really good stuff in there, and uh, it's someone who's from the Motown family of musicians. So uh, I haven't talked to a Motown person a really, really long time on this podcast, not since 2019 with Eddie Holland. So um, can't wait to have you. Can't wait for you guys to hear that. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that. But for now, let's get started. In this week's episode, the next week will be that interview episode. Okay, so let's talk about the history behind last week's group, which is Little Anthony and the Imperials. Now, here's the thing. So, sometimes it's kind of hard to connect the dots between what happened back then, 50, 60 years ago, to what's happening right now in the music industry. Um, because, you know, if you, you know, for the most part, except for Silk Sonic, right? I mean, Silk Sonic is a total retro throwback sort of a thing. But if you look at what's on the charts now it you know the music the popular music of right now for the most part really doesn't sound like the music from the 60s i mean you know totally different productions and arrangements and musically the, the songs are different too so it's kind of hard to connect the dots between you know artist success stories of the of the 60s and right now but the story of little anthony imperials does have something in it that is very, very, you know, uh, connectable, not just to the 60s, but to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, too. I mean, they they experienced something that a lot of artists have experienced, you know, in, in throughout, you know, rock and roll history. I mean, not just in the 60s, but, you know, like I said, this is, you know, there's, there's something in their story that is so, like, something that you could say about a lot of different artists you know, from different eras and even right now, um, because let me put it to you like this. A lot of artists in rock and roll history, starting from 55 on, you know, a lot of times, you know, they go through periods of major commercial success. They have a lot of hit records. They're selling a lot of, you know, they have they sell a lot of records and they, you know, sell out venues and they do really, really good, you know, as far as people buying their records and getting a lot of radio airplay, having a lot of hit songs, making a lot of money, you know, hypothetically, because that didn't always happen. A lot of times these artists got, you know, screwed over and they didn't make any money at all. I mean, that was more of a common occurrence versus the other way around. But that's besides the point. The point I'm trying to make is that um, 
throughout rock and roll history, there has always been this sort of thing where artists would have a period of time when they have when they would have a lot of commercial success and then nothing. Like something happened within their career, like they experienced personal family trauma or relationship trauma. And then they would just they wouldn't put out any music or they would, you know, they would drop out the face of the earth for a very long time, sometimes like 10 to 15 years. I mean, like, you know, sometimes, you know, band, band members don't get along and then like, you know, they experience a lot of personal tension and drama and then they break up. And, you know, and this is a very common thing that has happened in the music industry for so long. And there's been so many examples of artists that. For a long time, they weren't really putting out music or they were putting out records, but they weren't selling well and they were flopping and they just weren't successful at all. And then they, they, you know, for the point I'm trying to make is that every a lot of artists, you know, from the from the rock era on, a lot of them have always had downtime. Now, sometimes they would, you know, get back up and have commercial success again. They would come back, but a lot of times they didn't. But the point I'm trying to make is that. There have been several stories about artists having downtime and not having commercial success and just really not doing anything for a while, not putting out any music or just putting out music and it wasn't really doing anything. And then they finally came back. They, you know, they, they finally put out a record that they loved and they really they, they really enjoyed making. And then the record becomes a huge success and all of a sudden they're huge all over again after years of being out of the spotlight and being out of the loop when it comes to people's memories and people's uh, radars. And, you know, that's happened so many different times in the music industry from the 50s to right now. I mean, there's I can think of tons of examples of artists that had downtime and they weren't really in people's heads and they came back. And it's and though those those are always interesting sort of things to keep in mind, because sometimes, you know, downtime, you know, no matter how long it is, it could be five years, six years, 10 years. You know, a lot of times people's tastes change. A lot of times what people were into or people were interested as far as music is concerned, like five, ten years, before, you know, you know, in between the downtime when they're not having hits, you know, by the time they come back, you know, the artists, the, the, the people that were buying their music before, they're not really into that to, the, to what they were doing before or they're just, you know, people's tastes change like the, the people, the stuff that they were into when they were having hits. And now between the time they're coming back, when they came back. You know, uh, a lot of times they weren't really they're not, you know, they're they're into different things now. They kind of moved on from that. And this is a very this is this is an extremely important thing to keep in mind with little Anthony Imperials, because their period of commercial success was in 19 between 1957 and 1960. And this is at the time when rock and roll was at its peak. I mean, like I've said this before, that you had Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry. I mean, Buddy Holly, all these big heavyweight rock and roll artists were dominating the pop charts. And alongside them, you had doo-wop groups like the Dell Vikings, the Elegance, the, the Mellow Kings. And then you had Frankie Lyman Teenagers. And then you had this group, which was Little Anthony Imperials. And, you know, the, you know doo-wop and rock and roll were huge. But then what happened was that in, 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 the, in the middle, in like, you know, in 60, they, you know, they just things fizzled out and they just had some downtime. But then they came back in 1964 and had huge success all over again. But by this time, doo-wop really wasn't that much of a thing, really. People weren't really into that anymore. It was all about the British invasion. It was all about the Brill building. It was all about different things. It was about Motown. It was about R&B. It was about soul music. 
And doo-wop kind of just fell on the wayside. The, the late 50s sort of doo-wop thing was sort of not there anymore as far as popular music on the pop charts is concerned. So for them to, you know, go, go from having all that success they had in the late 50s and for them to come back in 64, like not just, you know, early 64, but summer 64, like the Beatles already had four or five records or six records already out. And then, of course, you had all these other different British Invasion bands that were also invading the charts at the exact same time changing the game for everybody and everything at that point so i mean for them to come back from having those hits in late 50s for them to have hits again after the british invasion and even during like when motown was killing it the four seasons were killing it the beach boys are killing it for them to come back at that moment and just completely reinvent themselves and do something completely different and just have their own sound that was wasn't like the late fifties, but it was sort of reminiscent of that, but still contemporary to nineteen sixty four. I mean, for them to do that and have major success all over again is just amazing. And a lot of artists have done that, not just in the sixties, but in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and right now. A lot of times, artists sort of reinvent themselves and stay current to what's 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 happening right now versus when they were first having success in the pop charts. So that is something that that is exactly what happened with Will Anthony Imperials. And I'm going to talk more about that as I as I uh, tell you guys more about this group, just in case you're a millennial listening to this podcast and you don't really know anything about them or you're a Gen Z. But I mean, you know, there's even though this group was, you know, like again, like it's hard to sort of make the connection between, you know, their music and right now in 2021 except for maybe like Burt Backrack and Dale and Giants latest project Blue Umbrella just came out this year but I mean it's just hard to make that connection but there is a sort of relatable sort of like thing that happened with them that happened to many different artists after that in the 70s 80s and 90s and that's just that's and that's basically it so I hope you guys found that interesting let's dive into their history now okay so in the late 50s you know, one thing I want you to keep in mind about Little Anthony Imperials is that at that time they weren't super unique, you know, because doo-wop groups back then were so common. There were so many of them. They were a huge commodity on Top 40 radio and on the on the Billboard charts too. I mean, they just they dominated you know, the the, the popular musical landscape of that time. And I know I've talked about uh, what doo-wop music is, just in case you don't know what it is. But just a, just a quick little review. It's songs, you know, m- most of, a lot of times they were ballads. Sometimes they were up-tempo songs, but they all had the, the classic ice cream uh, doo-wop chord changes, which is 1645 or 1625. Every song was like that. Didn't matter what artist it was, didn't, didn't matter what group it was, or if they're black or white, or if they're at West Coast or East Coast, they all had the same chord changes of 1645 or 1625. So every song would be G, E minor, C, D, or G, E minor, A minor, D. And literally, it would be interchangeable. The key, key wouldn't matter because it would always be either 1645 or 1625. And. A lot of these groups, you know, met each other in high school and then they basically started harmonizing with themselves on street corners. You know, they would, you know, and a lot of times this was an East Coast thing. Um, basically, uh, the, the these groups did this because that was the thing at the time. It was very, very popular. And that's exactly what they did. Um, but essentially, you know, they, they a lot of times the other th- component to a lot of these doo-wop records is the harmonies. You know they would they would they would stand close together 
and create these really, really tight-knit harmonies. And it was really hard to pick out one singer from another because they were singing so close together. And you could really... And, and the person that would shine the most would either be the bass singer or uh, the lead singer. Because, you know, they would often divvy up, like, who would sing what depending on what ranges these guys were in. I mean, a lot of times you'd have a baritone singer, you would have a falsetto lead singer, or you would have... Uh, tenors, you know, middle tenors, and then you, and then basically it was almost like, you know, a band where you have the 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 guitar players playing the middle range and the bass player playing lower range and the piano doing some of the middle range too, and then you had the drums doing more of the percussive, uh, you know, rhythm rhythmic part of the song. I mean, duop groups did that too. I mean, a lot of times uh, there were no drummers, you know, or they didn't harmonize together with the drummers, so. A lot of times, these percussive parts that they would come up would basically be the substitute for a drummer playing uh, with them. So they would oftentimes play drummer-esque parts by singing them, by vocalizing them, sort of like scatting. And that was another thing that typical was typical of doo-wop groups at that time. Um, so they were almost like a whole band, except it was like th four or five singers or three. You know, uh, so that's something that they did a lot back then. And this kind of continued into the early 60s, but it was mainly a thing in the 50s. So uh, just a quick little, you know, intro into like who are little Anthony Imperials? Well, uh, at the time, the, the first incarnation included Tracy Lord, Nathaniel Rogers and Ronald Ross and the lead singer. Uh, you know, his name was Aunt Jerome Anthony Gordine. And uh, they went through a couple of different names and basically... The, the first name that they that they settled on was the Chesters. And, you know, and basically uh, there was and before Anthony Gordine was in Little Anthony Imperials, he was in the DuPonts. And basically he, he joined the group after that. And then basically, uh, you know, Nathaniel uh, Ronald Ross got replaced by Ernest Wright. And then they basically they uh, they they were recording for a little bit for Apollo Records, but. They didn't. Their career didn't really take off until 1958, and what happened was this: they got signed to N Records, and N Records was owned by a guy named George Golner. George Golner was an older guy. He was like, you know, in his 40s. I think it was, I think he was, uh, you know, you know, in his 40s at that point, or like, you know, late. Like he was in his 30s and 40s. He was, he was an older dude. Um, you know, so he was kind of out of touch with the rock and roll scene, but he was one of those older guys who basically was so in touch with the younger people who were buying 45 records at that point that he basically, he understood them. He really got what they were, what they were going through. So he would, um, he, even though he was a man in his thirties, he would oftentimes have the, uh, the musical taste of a 15 year old girl, you know, buying records at that time. So he would really get into the teenage psyche of a lot of these teenagers who are buying records at this point. And he would, you know, he would think like that when he would he'd be producing a lot of these sessions. And again, he was a typical producer at that point. He'd be keeping on the clock when, you know, so because a lot of these sessions were three hours. So he would keep it on the clock. He would make sure that the mic placement was good. He would, you know, he would make sure like he would teach, you know, people how to get records on the radio. I mean, his job was, you know, very much a very important part to maintaining and keeping a record label. He would talk with the distributors and make sure that the stuff got distributed. Um, you know, so, he, you know, he owned a label that the Imperials got signed to called N Records. I mean, and he and he was a New York guy, so he had offices in 1619 Broadway at the time, which was the Brill Building. 
And, uh, you know, he, he owned these labels. And unfortunately, another thing that George Goldner was associated with was that he was a crook, sir. He was a, he was very much a criminal guy. So as typical, a lot of things that happened in the music industry back in the late fifties and early sixties, and even in, even going into the sixties, um, you know, he, he, sh- he, he screwed over a lot of the artists that he worked with. So a lot of, you know, he, you know, because he took advantage of a lot of these people too. So they, he made them sign these contracts that they weren't really aware of what was the, the deal what the terms of the deal with a lot of these contracts. So, you know, they were just so excited to go in the studio and make a record that, you know, when he, when he had these groups sign over these contracts, you know, they didn't know that they were basically forking over almost all the money to him. So he took advantage of a lot of these groups and, uh, you know, these groups, you know, and unfortunately, you know, he, he got in trouble with the law and he got arrested for embezzlement and gambling. So, you know, he just he was just someone that was and this was very typical at that time in the music industry. A lot of, you know, East Coast guys were involved in the mob. And like like I said, like he George Goldner had a relationship with Morris Levy, who was the head of Roulette Records. So he, you know, you know, he, you know, Roulette Records took over distribution for a lot of his labels. So he was someone that very much got, but he was very much involved in making a lot of these records. And here's the other interesting thing about Lil Anthony Imperials is that they started out as the Imperials, but you might wonder, how did they get the name Lil Anthony? Well, there is a DJ at the time in the late 50s, and his name was Alan Freed. Alan Freed was one of the most very, was one of the most influential, most, you know, very powerful DJ at the time who had a lot of clout. Um, he had his own radio show in Cleveland in the late 50s called The Moon Dog Show. And uh, he was basically at the very beginning in the beginning of the rock and roll era, he capitalized on the power that rock and roll music had with teenagers and how it could be commercially viable and how people could really get into it and how people can make money off of it. So uh, he was involved in the Paolo scandal, but that's, you know, a whole nother story. But basically, um, one thing that Alan Free did with specifically with the Imperial with Imperials is that when he debuted the first hit record, Tears on a Pill on the radio, the, the label on, on, on the end label said it was just at the Imperials. Well, what he did is that he announces when he announced the record to the record buying public who were listening to the radio at the time. He said, and now here's another little record for you, Little Anthony Imperials singing Tears on My Pillow. So he basically called the group and named them Little Anthony Imperials just by playing their record on the radio. And the group wasn't aware of that. They didn't know that was going to happen, but they decided to stick with that name for basically throughout their entire career. And it was all because of Alan Freed, who basically called them that on the radio instead of by their correct name, the Imperials. So it's really interesting how, you know, that's just 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 goes to show you how powerful these disc jockeys were back in the late 50s and early 60s and how they could really, really just make some serious career moves for a lot of different uh, artists at that time. And how they were so important to get these records on the radio and get them becoming and making them become hits, you know, because a lot of times they did accept money from a lot of these promo guys, you know, who were, who were trying to get their, their records pushed to being on the radio. You know, so there was a lot of payola happening at that time. So, um, you know, and he was a very, very powerful DJ who did that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, they had they had a whole string of hits. You know, I mean, the B side of, uh, you know, that record, Two Kind of People in the World, also was also was a pretty big hit. And they had some other singles, too. But, you know, their last sort of big hit on the charts was in 1960 with Shimmy Shimmy Coco Bop. And this is when it gets interesting because, you know, in 1960, they had that one last hit song. 
and then that was it for a while. Because at that point in 1960, I mean, again, that's not one of my favorite songs, but William Anthony Materials. It's actually, the song isn't that great. And I know that he's talked about that, too. He wasn't crazy about that record either. But um, in... In 1960, that was their very last hit together, and then they broke up. What happened was that Anthony Gordon decided to go solo, and then the Imperials decided to, um, you know, a couple of things happened. Uh, he went solo, and then he, and then Nate Rogers was drafted, and then, and then Tracy Lord left to go get married. So basically, it became uh, the 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 principal lineup for the group became Clarence Collins, Ernest Wright, and the new guy named Sammy Strain and George Kerr. So, and basically he and George Kerr got replaced by Kenny Seymour after a short time. And this is when they were just really, really struggling. They weren't really having any hits, uh, you know, at this moment because, you know, they just, you know, they were missing their lead, their main lead singer, which was Anthony Gordine, because he was having, he was trying to make it, make it uh, as a solo artist at this point too, but he just wasn't, the hits just weren't coming. He was just not really having any success. And this is in between 60 and 63. So this was during the height of the Brill Building era, the dance crazes, the girl groups, um, you know, the, the the teen idols. I mean, this was when this music was really, really blowing up. And some, you know, and some neo-doo-wop stuff happening at this time, too. So they were missing out on all of it. I mean, they were just weren't really on the charts at this point. And they were just like, and this has happened in other other in other time frames, too, not just in the 60s, but in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, there were certain periods where, you know, certain groups were just out of it. They were missing out on, you know, sort of changing sort of musical tastes that were happening. And, uh, you know, again, like, you know, there's all there's always for a lot of these careers, for a lot of these artists, there was always periods of downtime. And this was the downtime from 60, 63 during this period of, you know, all these different musical things happening in the pop charts right in between the birth of rock and roll, the Beatles. So um, now we're going to get into exactly what striked the comeback and what happened when these guys got back on the charts. Okay, so let's talk about what happened. Okay, so there was a definitely a gap here. Okay, so we talked about how they had their late their hits in the late fifties, and they were doing pretty well for themselves between fifty eight and sixty. They were doing really really good, but by nineteen sixty sixty one sixty two sixty three, you know, they weren't really again nothing was happening. But how did they get from? Uh, that so they're to their major comeback in 64 after the British invasion. Well, you know, what happened was that they got back together and they realized that they sort of needed to get back together because they because they knew that nothing was happening by, you know, just with the Imperials and Anthony Gordine separate. They just knew nothing was going to work. They needed to get back together because they realized there was a lot of chemistry they had. Just, 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 just the, the four of them together singing. So they, you know, but the problem was, was that, you know, you know, gold and go all the, all the labels that they were on, the label they were on in the late fifties, it was, and they were kind of just out of, you know, circulation because they got taken over by Morris Levy and, you know, it just, the, the, the gone label just, you know, vanished by like 62, 63. So they were without a label and they were without a producer, really, because George Goldner was producing a lot of their hits, a lot of their early hits. And, you know, and they were just they need a new producer and a new songwriter and they need a new label. So what did they do? Well, 
Enter in Teddy Randazzo. Okay, so if you don't know who Teddy Randazzo is, Teddy Randazzo was an Italian songwriter, and uh, you know he was an artist at first. He was in a group called the Three Chuckles in the late fifties. And in fact, I think I I, I want to say that they were in a movie together, Little Anthony Imperials and the three and and uh, and the Three Chuckles, or they did shows together, or they you know because I knew that they knew each other at that time. Um, cause you know, the three chuckles were an Alan Freed movie, but I'm not sure if little Anthony Imperials were in it. I, I, it's hard for me to remember, but I knew that they knew each other. So Teddy Randazzo was a longtime friend of the group, right? And he, in, in between the, the Imperials and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, in between like his soul, solo stuff and the Imperials, I mean, he, he wrote a lot of, he was a very successful songwriter and he wrote with a guy named Bobby Weinstein and, uh, some of his early six, one of his earliest successes as a songwriter, and again, he was an Italian guy. He, you know, he was he was based in the Brill Building at that time, and I think he was sixteen, nineteen, and basically one of his early successes as a songwriter was a song called "Pretty Blue Eyes," which was covered by Steve Lawrence, like very end of fifty nine, beginning of sixty. So that was one of his very early successes as a songwriter, and uh, you know he, you know he, he he did okay for a little bit, but he wasn't really having much success anyways. I mean, I think one of his songs was called The Way of a Clown. I think I think it did okay. It might have been a B-side for someone. Um, I, 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 don't, I honestly don't remember who did it, but it wasn't a hit. I mean, it wasn't a hit by any means. I think it was a B-side to a, to a, to a A-side single that was a hit. So that, that, that did okay. But he just, you know, he just really wasn't having the success that he once was, and neither were the Imperials. So they got back together, and something happened where, uh, you know, he was writing some new songs, and again, this was in, this was this was nineteen sixty four now. So, the Beatles were happening. Um, you know, the Four Seasons were having hits, and so were the Beach Boys. So things were different now. Like, <laughs> there were there were there were these self contained groups, and then you had Motown, who was having these huge, humongous hits. Right out of the gate with Mary Wells and you know all all these different groups. I mean, like you know there was the Smokey Robinson, the Miracles, Martha Ruse and the Vandellas. I mean, there was so much going on in the very first half of 1964. Things were so different. I mean, you know, it was a British invasion, so a lot of these early 60s guys were getting dropped off the charts. Neil Stacco wasn't having any more hits. Ricky Nelson was having having any more hits. The Shirelles weren't having any more hits. I mean. The Everly Brothers are gone. So many people were getting dropped off the charts like flies, uh, as far as American groups, because because the, the Brits were taking over so much, and uh, and this was going on in very in like or again first half of 1964, right? Um, so, and the other thing that happened in 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 this part of this part of the 60s, right, was the was the invention of sort of soul music with a Latin flavor to it. And dramaticism, which was which was basically created by the likes of Lee Bernstoller and Burt Bacharach, and they nailed the sound with records by the groups like the Drifters and Chuck Jackson and Dionne Warwick. So they created that you know that sound in the very late late fifties and the beginning of the sixties, and Teddy Brandazzo picked up on that instantly. You know, because because he because he, he heard those records and like yes, this is exactly he he knew that sound and he knew this is exactly what what he wanted to do with the little Anthony Imperials because he knew that this was what's this was what was going to get them back on the charts and this was what's going to make them successful again. Um, they needed to you know in embody the sound and and re, and basically 
you know, really, you know, hone in their chops and basically, you know, have this very dramatic sort of Latin soul feel to it while still retaining some of the elements of late 50s, you know, especially with their first hit single back. But with all this being said, you know, they, you know, Teddy Randazzo hooked up with the Imperials and he started writing with his partner, Bobby Weinstein. And they were able to get a deal with uh, a United Artists subsidiary label called DCP Records. And basically Don Costa, who was one of the main guys at ABC Paramount, um, you know, basically he he uh, he was like the, the main arranger and conductor and producer. I mean, sure, like Lloyd Price, uh, Steve Lawrence, Paul Inca, he worked with all of those people. He got them a deal with his with his own production company and record label DCP Productions. That and basically they, they and they were signed to DCP Productions, and this is when shit started to ha- happen again for them. And their first hit back was "I'm on the Outside Looking In," and that was a top twenty record in the summer of 1964, and that really really brought them back. And then just it just and all of a sudden you know they were just back. They were on the charts again. And it was their f- and it was their first first top twenty hit, literally since Shimmy Shimmy Coco Pop. So this was a huge deal for them. And now let's kind of get into what how how Hurt So Bad came about. And the next, well, first of all, going on my head came first, and then it Hurt So Bad. Let's talk about that now. So now that we are at this point of their career in 1964, um, it's so interesting because Teddy, along with uh, this going on right with him being becoming the main producer and arranger for Little Anthony and the Imperials. Um, while all this was happening, Teddy Randazzo also was a touring uh, songwriter and singer and musician in Vegas. Um, he was playing a bunch of gigs in Vegas, and a lot of the musicians that he used in his touring band in Vegas later became the guys that he would wind up using on Little Anthony Imperials records. And those people included Larry Taylor, the bass player, Bill Lewis, the drummer, Vince Megna, the guitar player, and Jerry McGee, the guitar player. And uh, all those guys that he, uh, you know, played with in Vegas wound up on Little Anthony Imperials records. And if none of those names sound familiar to you, I'm going to make a little connection with you right now. So that way you can kind of get a better idea for what would happen just shortly after this whole Little Anthony Imperials comeback thing would sort of fizzle out. Um, another musician, actually two musicians that, uh, you know, Teddy Randazzo was playing with in Vegas at the time while he was producing, uh, you know, the little Anthony Imperials in New York City simultaneously. Those two guys were Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. Um, Bobby Hart was someone that became a musician for, uh, for, for Teddy Randazzo, while he was recording in Ve- in New York and also touring in Vegas. Um, but it wasn't long after Bobby Hart was playing with, Lil- with, uh, with Teddy Randazzo in Vegas that just a year later, like literally like a, just a couple years later, he would team up with his old friend Tommy Voice, who he had met originally in New York in the Brill Building, and they would te- they would they would move to LA together and become songwriters and producers and produce music for this new group that was coming up, which was a brand new TV show concept that was being developed into a musical group, and that group was known as the Monkees. And they would use a lot of the musicians that both of them met while they were playing together in Teddy Randazzo's band as part of the first group of studio musicians that backed up. Uh, the singles that would later go on to be the first group of songs the Monkees would record in 1966. But that's besides the point. 
Now let's get back to it. So basically what happened was that um, he, you know, Bobby Hardard knew Teddy Brindazzo. And when he was coming back to New York, he, you know, he had, Teddy had told him Don Costa had actually signed little Anthony Imperials to his label, DCP Records. And Teddy invited him to come to the studio to watch him conduct the orchestra and basically, you know, uh, arrange the session for little Anthony Imperials. And it was at Bell Sound Studios, by the way. And uh, when they were at Bell Sound Studios, they basically recorded a couple songs that will wind up becoming the very first two singles that uh, Little Anthony Imperials will put out under under you know their new under the new ownership of DCP Records and new pr- production of uh, Teddy Randazzo, and those songs are "I'm on the Outside Looking In" and "Going Out of My Head." So basically what happened was that after they did that session, and this was in 1964, I would assume it would be like early, like like May, you know, December, May, May, June of 64, because uh, I'm on the outside looking in was on the charts August, September, and going out in my head was released after. So they put out those two singles, right? And then it was, the, that session was probably during May and June. And then they went back to Vegas, right? Because that's basically what he was doing. He was recording with the, with the Imperials in New York, and then he was also at the same time recording in uh sorry touring in vegas so they they headed back to a club in vegas called the thunderbird and basically one of the musicians that he was that they were playing with at the time jerry mcgee decided not to join them and uh you know he was and basically you know he was he was he was decided that he wanted to leave the group and you know and 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 go and go to la and basically become an la studio musician and that's when they got and that's when they got another guy who was a friend of bobby a heart to replace him and his name was Vince Megna. So Vince Megna became the the new guy who basically was the new touring guitar player that Teddy Randaz was playing with at the time. So at the time Bobby was kind of hesitant about, you know, uh he was he was doing he was doing okay as far as you know making money, you know, playing with Teddy Randazzo, but Tommy was like, look at man, like there's no future in you being on the road all the time with Teddy Randazzo. Like you know, like you're just, you know, it's it, you're not going to make that much money. You know, it's it's not going to be that fruitful for you. Why don't you come to L.A. and, you know, come and, and come right right with me? I'm, I'm with Screen Gems right now and they just set up a new office in L.A. And I think it'd be cool if you can come and write with me over there. And uh, you'd be making a lot. You're making you could make me pretty. You make be making pretty good money if you did that. And we could write some hits together. So. He was kind of persuaded by that, so eventually that's what he would wind up doing. But for now, he was still, um, you know, in and at the time it was you know the the job was a hundred bucks a week for Screen Gems, and that was a lot less than what he was making while he was touring with Teddy Randazzo in Vegas. But he eventually agreed to become a writer with Tommy Boyce for Screen Gems in L.A. But for now, he was still playing with Bobby Hart. I mean, sorry, with uh, Teddy Randazzo in Vegas. So it wasn't, but for now, that's something he would eventually wind up wind up agreeing to, but not not this second. So now we're gonna get to the real story behind "Hurt So Bad," which is a song that Teddy Randazzo, Bobby Weinstein, and Bobby Hart would rec- would write together. And it was the third single for Little Anthony and the Imperials, and it was their and it was one of their biggest hit songs. Because what happened was that, uh, you know, they, they you know, they, they released go- uh, I'm on the Outside Looking In and Going Out of My Head. And both those songs did pretty well. They got up to the top 40. But what happened was that by the time Going Out of My Head was in the charts, 
and it was coming down, uh, Teddy Brindowser realized that they didn't have another single to follow up uh, going on in my head. Like, they had absolutely nothing. So, really, what happened was that, you know, he realized, oh, shit, we got to put out a follow-up single to <laughs> to going on in my head. Otherwise, these are the only two hit songs this group is going to have during this comeback period that they're experiencing right now. So, he said, listen, I got to fly back to New York and rec- and we got and record something new for little Anthony Imperials because, you know, we don't have anything pr- else recorded right now except for those two songs. So, basically, you know, what he did is that... Um, he would, he would, he, you know, he, and he also said that, hey, can you, can you, can someone else replace me while I'm, while I'm in New York? Because we, you know, we have to record, record at least one new song for this group. So essentially, you know, he was like, okay, so we need one, one more new song for Anthony Imperials. And while we're here, let's just go upstairs and let's get on the piano and let's try to record a new song or write a new song for Anthony Imperials. And uh, basically, you know, he, he, you know, it was Bobby Weinstein, Teddy Rendazzo, and him, Bobby Hart. And, you know, he, he was, he was at the time, you know, he was considering himself fortunate to have written, uh, you know, a, a couple songs, you know, uh, for, you know, with Teddy. But, you know, he, you know, at the same time, you know, he, he, his, he was kind of deciding, okay, maybe the road's not for me. And maybe I just want to do this songwriting thing because he was he was one of the singers that Lil Anthony was I'm sorry with Teddy Rendaz was singing with at the time, um, but you know he was like okay, let's try to write something for Lil Anthony Imperials for their for their third single that they were putting out because they had already put out going on in my head and hurts and uh and I'm on the outside looking in but they needed a third single, so what they did is that when they were in the writing room. Uh, Bobby Weinstein suggested some titles, and then all of a sudden, Teddy heard the words "hurt so bad," and then he and then he started to sing a melody, and he created an arrangement on the piano as he went, and then his, you know Bobby Hart's two co-writers, which were Teddy and Bobby, were basically in perfectly in sync with each other, and they were essentially exchanging lyric lines, and basically they were com- they were contributing lyric lines as the song was being written. And one of them said, I know you don't know what I'm going through. And it was basically as things were developing, uh, you know, it was it was they were starting to create this story about a guy who was agonizing in pain as he was seeing his ex-girlfriend in public again. And basically, you know, and and at the time, you know, they they were in the middle of this writing session and Bobby was like, "Okay, I have to, you know, contribute something like I was just trying to figure out what can I do and basically you know you know when they were first writing this they you know the by the Teddy and Teddy and Bobby Weinstein basically had the chorus let me tell you that it hurt so bad they had the first verse and then Bobby Hart added the line you know it hurt so bad to see you again you know basically they added on that little thing and then he 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 started to shout well like needles and pins and then basically you know he he sort of he started continuing the song by adding a new verse to it and basically uh what happened was that he, he you know he he, he loved the teddy randazzo loved the description of the song and he added a little descending melody line to and he to combinate the extra words and basically what happened was that um you know they finished the lyric to you know in basically in record time to return back to the 2 a.m show that they were doing in vegas you know, because basically, like they were in the middle of doing a show, 
And essentially they were like, okay, we got to finish song for, <laughs> for a little Anthony and, and the Imperials. And we've, we've got something like brand new for them. And, uh, essentially, you know, and what happened was that after, th after they had essentially finished the song and what, what, what they did, uh, is that, is that, is that they basically gave little Anthony that little extra lyric, please don't go, please don't go. And what happened was that after they finished the 2 a.m. 2 a.m. show in Vegas, Teddy Randazzo, you know, basically, you know, scribbled down some arrangement ideas, you know, for orchestral arrangements and then flew back to New York. And basically what happened was that they went back into Bell Sound Studios the next day. Uh, you know, little Anthony, you know, went up to the mic and then he sang Hurt So Bad. And then basically that was essentially it. Like he, they recorded the song at Bell Sound, and they also recorded another song that day, Reputation, which was, I believe, was the B side, and that was another song, uh, you know, you know that Bobby Hart wrote on the Greyhound bus on his first day back in New York, and you know, Never Again, another song, you know, written by him, written by him and Teddy at the Stone Country House he owned at the beautiful wind suburb of New York. So Hurt So Bad came out. And like December 1964, and it, and it, and it basically hit the top 10 in 19 February 1965. And then it got covered by the Letterman in 60 in the later part of the 60s. And then also uh, Linda Ronstadt covered it and had a huge hit with it. So basically, uh, you know, what happened was that after, you know, he, they covered it. And then April 65, he basically, you know, he did his last gig with Teddy Randazzo, you know, and as part as part of the as part of the group that he was touring with in Vegas, and he flew back to LAX, and then he basically decided to, you know, he f he, was, he flew to LAX to, you know, he left Los Angeles and came back to LA, and then he basically signed an exclusive uh, publishing deal with Screen Gems Columbia Music, and he became uh, someone that he would write with. Uh, Tommy Boyce, his old friend from New York, and they would get together and write and produce records for the Monkees. And that is the story behind that song. So, hope you guys found that interesting. I pulled from a couple different sources other than Wikipedia. So, hope you found that a really cool story. And that concludes this week's episode of this podcast. So, yeah, basically, with Little Anthony Imperials, those specific records on DCP Records. And by the way, they had a couple records after. Um, I'm on the outside looking in, going on in my head, and hurt so bad. They had "Take Me Back" and "I Miss You So" and a couple other hits. Um, you know, those were recorded with a mix of New York studio musicians, probably Mo Weschler and Milt Hinson and Gary Chester and those guys, and the musicians who played with Teddy Randazzo's Vegas band. You know, he was playing with at the exact same time in the in the, in 1964. So um, there you have it. So um, also, you know. After, you know, the hits ended, uh, Little Anthony Imperials kept recording a bunch of stuff, and they eventually wound up, you know, recording with Tom Bell in Philadelphia, so that's kind of cool, and then they eventually wound up on the oldie circuit. So yeah, that concludes part two of episode number 157 of my 16 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about Little Anthony Imperials, and you didn't really know too much about them, and uh, you learned a lot of cool things like, you know, the fact that they had a comeback and you're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. And you're a millennial or a Gen Z, please email me at samltwoolyacloud.com. Or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And you can check out more of my original music at samleesmusic.net. And you can also check out 
um, the things that are normally in the description of those of this podcast, which includes my EP that I put out this year. We'd love if you guys can listen to that. Let me know what you think. What's your favorite song? How do the, how do the songs make you feel? What do you, you know, are, do they, can you relate to any of them? We'd love it if you guys could email me your feedback on the songs at samltvoyacolide.com. Link to that in the description of this episode of this podcast. And you can also check out um, the two interviews I did this year with Hawk Magazine. Shout out LA. Um, I'm hoping to do more soon because. You know, it's it's you know it's you know I I know I got those interviews this year, but it's been a while since I've actually been uh, interviewed um, in any sort of publication. I was I'm very fortunate that I got to do those two interviews, but um, it's it's hard to know exactly when my next interview with a with any given publication is going to be because um, a lot of those sort of things are pay to play. To be honest, be honest with you. I mean, you know, people invest a lot of money into a publicist, and they get them write-ups and reviews. So, I just don't have that kind of collateral right now to be able to do, you know, have have those sort of things. So, I mean, those are two freebies, which I'm very grateful for. I'm glad I got them, but it's just, I don't know when the next one, ne- next two write-ups will happen. I mean, uh, I'll, you know, again, like. I, you know, I, I get them when I can. So that's sort of um, where I'm at with that. So um, if, if you read those two interview articles, you learned a lot about me, want to meet up with me in person, um, please email me at samltwilliacloud.com. Don't be a stranger. If you listen to this podcast and you're a fan of me and you live in L.A., we'll love to meet you. Um, also, uh, if you uh, another thing you can check out, is uh, the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. And there you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning why I even have playlists to begin with. Well, first of all, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a different song like every two weeks for this podcast for the most part. So to keep track of all the songs I've done, I create little playlists for this for the show. And also, another reason why I have Judy's playlist is because on this podcast, you're not going to hear the whole song. You're only going to hear 30 seconds of it, and that's for legal reasons. So, naturally, if you want to hear the whole thing, you know, that's why I compiled these playlists. So, that way you can listen to the whole song, depending on if you have Spotify or YouTube. So, um, you can check those out, and I'd love it if you guys could listen to those and let me know what you think. Of, the, of those of those playlists and if the, the, listening to those playlists gives you any ideas for songs to talk about next on my podcast and I have yet please email those ideas to me at samltwilliacloud.com and uh, yeah so would love it if you guys could do that you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and everything you can do is you can follow me on TikTok now yes I have a TikTok account and I've been posting on there pretty frequently so if you guys want to follow me on there and keep up with me on there the same Instagram is the same username as Instagram. I heart oldies. Would love if you guys could do that. Yeah. So um, another thing you can check out is the official Red Bull merch store for this podcast. And by the way, you know this is another way you can support me. You know, with, other than listening to this podcast, if you feel so inclined to, um, you don't have to, of course. But if you want, if you want to support me, other than by listening to the show, you can. Get some official Millennial Throwback Machine merch, which is in the description of this episode of this podcast. Um, you'll you'll see the official logo for the show and attached a bunch of really cool merch items. And uh, we'll let it if you guys can let me know what you think of the price of each item in the store and the logo itself. You can do that by emailing me at samltwilliacolab.com or you can just buy something from there. Again, totally up to you. But 
Um, yeah, that's one way you can support this podcast other than by listening to the show. Um, yeah, so and also, you know, another thing I want to remind you guys of is that if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcast, you can leave a review. Um, it's been a while since I've forgotten a review for this podcast. So if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts and want to review my my show, then please, I would love if you can do that. Um, you know, because I haven't gotten any reviews in a long time, and I would really, really appreciate if you guys could leave a review for the show. Um, I, you know, I, it's on a bunch of other platforms too, but each platform is different as to whether or not you can actually comment or say something about my show or not. So, um, but I know on Apple Podcasts you can definitely leave a review. So I'd love it if you guys could do that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, um, like I said, next week I'm going to be interviewing. Uh, I'm going to have a guest on the show, and that will be for Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and yeah, other than that. Um, I am going to be prioritizing trying to find some kind of job, you know, pretty freaking soon, like actually right now, because one thing I haven't talked about with you guys yet is that, um, you know, as of this year, I, I no longer can do this podcast and for free. Um, my hosting service kind of switched things up on me this year, and now I have to pay a yearly fee to do to even host this podcast and put it out. So, um you know, and that's in my next billing cycle. I think it's in March is when I have to pay for it again. So I'm kind of under the gun right now. So um, I will be trying to make money, you know, doing something else just so that way I can even do this podcast because that's uh, that's it's in the not so distant future that I'm going to have to pay for me doing the show. And, uh, you know, and it's just uh, I'm going to you know, I'm going to get an increase with my income this year, but that'll help out a little bit. But still, I mean. Uh, it's some. It's definitely uh, something that I'm gonna have to take care of pretty soon. So, um, just just to let you guys know that, I mean, like I said, I'm still gonna do this podcast for the time being because I have time to do it. and I love doing it, but I, I, it's gonna it's costing me money to do it now, so I'm gonna have to pay for it somehow. You know, so I'll have to get some kind of job. So, but that's something I'm gonna be doing. So, I'm um, just to let you guys know that. And uh, I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of the podcast. The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy.